0: Father, as we look together in your word this morning, I pray that even a drop of the riches of your goodness and grace to us in Christ would be made real to each of us so that we would go as Elijah did in the strength of that provision, Lord, for days and weeks to come. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful things you've provided for us in your Son. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We will start back in John's Gospel next Sunday. We've had about a five-week hiatus with Christmas and then the end of the year and the new year. If you are here last week, you know, we talked about kind of uh, offering a perspective or a paradigm, a picture of a way of seeing 2005 uh, as a house. This was out of Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, that by wisdom a house was built. By understanding, it is established or confirmed. And by knowledge, its rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And what a great thought, what a great picture for your life and mine in 2005. Building a structure, the structure of our lives, based on the truth of God's word, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And all those things that we need to build and establish this kind of life and see it filled with riches and goodness are to be found in Christ. Colossians said that all wisdom and knowledge is hidden in him, not hidden away from him, but hidden in him so that it's available to all, so we don't have to go any further than the Lord Jesus for the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding we need to build a life that's filled with precious, pleasant riches. Related to that, uh, I am firmly convinced that most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, including myself here, we tend to live like spiritual paupers when the wealth, as it were, of the universe is ours. That is. We live far, 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 far below the standard of living, if you will, spiritually, that God's made available to us through Christ. And so for this first Sunday of 2005, I'm going to highlight briefly, and this is very brief, just some of the things that you and I, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, some of the things that you and I have by virtue of being in Christ. And that if we could get a hold just of one or two of these things, it changes the way you view life. It changes the way you view yourself, and it changes your experience of life on this earth. If we could just gain some even little sense of what's true of us in Christ and what provision is made for us in Christ, it would revolutionize our lives. We wouldn't live at the spiritual poverty level We would live like kings and queens, which, in fact, in Christ we are, as you'll see in some scriptures here in a moment. When you talk about what's true of and for Christians because of our relationship with Christ, the truth is there's so much there that what we're doing this morning, I'll talk about five things, but if you taught this or if you talk to someone else about this, you might mention five other things we're just we're just uh, scratching the surface. that's all we're doing. I make no apology for that. There's not time to do much more on any single Sunday morning. but if we lay hold of any of this stuff this morning, it'll change the way you view yourself and God it'll change your experience of life. I've mentioned this movie before, but I'm going to open and close with illustrations from it. Big Fish is just a delightful movie and in this movie, Big Fish, uh, Edward Bloom, the protagonist, lives this rich, full, exciting, joyful, expectant life. And you learn at the beginning of the movie he does so because he is firmly convinced he believes that he was made for an extraordinary life. There's a there's an episode early in the movie in which he's growing and he realizes that the goldfish grows related to the size of its environment. And so his body's this is a fictitious story obviously. So his body's growing to adult size when he's still a little boy, and he realizes he was made for bigger things. And so it's this paradigm that shapes his view of life as he goes through all these episodes. So even even things that look like downsides to Edward, they're not, because he knows, see, he's got an extraordinary life to live. And that's kind of a sense for you and I. We are called to an extraordinary life. And if with Edward we can lay hold of some of the things that are true, what God's laid out for us, uh, we'll live, like him, this full, expectant, peaceful, joyful life. It won't be spiritual poverty. We'll lay hold of some of the things that are true of us, and with him we'll realize we're made for bigger things, and that'll shape the way we live and view life. The first thing I want to talk about that's ours in Christ is frankly the one thing that you and I cannot do without if we're to experience anything, any riches of grace in Christ, is forgiveness. It is forgiveness. As you guys know, probably by experience and theologically, if you open your Bible at all, sin is an issue for us because sin is an issue for God. And sin affects every human being. From Adam and Eve on, we all sin. And if we're not sure about this, Romans 3 says all have sinned fall short of the glory of God. In fact, it says there's none righteous, quoting Psalms. No, if there's any ambiguity there, there's none righteous. How many is that? Well, it's no, not even one. So you and I have a sin problem. James says we all sin in many ways. 1 John 1 says if you say you don't sin, you're lying, which is a sin. Thank you. So by omission and commission, thoughtfully and and just negligently, we sin every day. And we're born in sin. God's holy. It says he's so holy he can't look at sin. He can't, in other words, he can't tolerate sin. He can't sit down next to sin. He cannot associate with sin. And so if we're sinners and he can't tolerate sin, we have a problem we have, from our perspective, an incurable problem or an incurable disease. Fortunately, in Christ, we've got redemption. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. If you and I don't experience forgiveness, we have an eternal problem with God. We have an eternal separation from God. Fortunately, as you know, there is forgiveness in Christ. And let me read this passage out of Isaiah fifty-three. You know, the end of Isaiah 52 and into 53, just one of the, the great portraits of Christ in all the Bible, related to taking your sin and mine away so that we could be forgiven. And briefly, out of Isaiah 53, Isaiah told us of the Messiah who had come 800 years later. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. He would render himself, Isaiah 53.10, as a guilt offering. Verse 11, God's servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Theologically, when you hear someone talk about substitutionary atonement, that's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. Jesus became your substitute and mine when he died on the cross for our sins. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. He bore our iniquity. He took upon himself the guilt and the sin that was ours. He bore our iniquity. Because he did that, he will justify many. That's salvation. That's deliverance for those who believe in him because he bore their iniquities. (coughs) Ephesians 2 says, In Christ you who formerly were far off Speaking of Gentiles, because Gentiles weren't part of Israel, part of God's covenant people, but also simply speaking to Gentiles who were lost in sin. Remember Isaiah, sin separates us from God. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He himself is our peace. Psalm Psalm 130 verse 4 says, 3 and 4, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? That is, Lord, we're all guilty. If you start marking up, chalking up sin, we're all guilty. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with God through Christ. And then Colossians two thirteen and 14, When you were dead in your transgressions, separated from God, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, with Christ, Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And finishing with Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. For all of us, our greatest need is forgiveness. Our sins separate us from God. We can't save ourselves. Jesus comes down, takes on our sin for us. We believe in him and are saved. This is all... God's provision. This is Jesus, our substitute. And let me just mention this. Um, When you think about forgiveness, um, remember this related to substitutionary atonement. If your substitute has taken the punishment due your sin, how much punishment due your sin is left? Zero. Zero. This is is helpful to remember about forgiveness. If you're a believer, your sins have been covered, which is what atonement means. They've been covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus himself. In Christ on the cross, God's wrath, his angry judgment against sin, was fully met. So God's wrath was poured out on your substitute and mine, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God and you need to get this, you can never be punished for your sins, ever. You can never bear wrath, God's wrath, for any of your sins because Jesus has already covered them. Are you with me on this? You know today that in a court of law, if a person is found not guilty, they can never be tried again for that crime. And this is similar to this. If God pours out his wrath on your sin, you who have fled to Christ for salvation, he is punishing again a sin which Christ has already suffered for. What God has left for you and I, when you and I sin as believers, as his children, and we do, of course, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, God has no wrath for sin left against you and I because it's fully met in Christ. So if he punishes you in wrath for your sin, Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient if God has any wrath left for your sin as a believer. Those who refuse Christ will face in themselves, on their own behalf, the wrath of God against sin in eternity. But for the Christian, there's no wrath left. Now, there is this. When you and I sin as children of God, what we do is we break fellowship with our Father, and that's an issue. There's no wrath, and if we have lots of parents here, when your children disobey you, you don't execute them. I'm serious. You don't execute them, even though you might like to sometimes. In other words, when you discipline your child, what you do for them is in their best interest because you're changing them and you're compelling their behavior to be within certain limits. This is to their benefit. You're freeing them from their sin. This is a good thing. You do not execute them. You don't throw them in jail. You don't do numerous things which under a legal system would be a legal answer against their failure. You don't, because that's not your relationship with them. Now, let's say one of your children does something against the law. They will stand before a judge, and they will answer, if you will, the wrath of the law against their law-breaking. They'll suffer for, but not you as a parent. So when you and I sin as children of God, there's a relationship issue, and your dad is a good dad, and he will discipline you, and he will chasten you, and it is painful at times. But this has nothing to do with the wrath of God against sin, which is met in Christ. So, when you and I are forgiven in Christ, the wrath of God against sin has been fully met. We will never, ever face that. Ever. You know, in Hebrews it says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's what we would face if Isaiah 53 weren't true. But because Isaiah 53 is true and because our substitute has fully met God's penalty, just penalty do our sins, we will never answer for our sins in that manner. Again, we may face a father who's displeased with our action and he will chasten and discipline. And it's for our good. It's not God's wrath against sin. The first thing we needed was forgiveness to bring us into the family of God. Now, We all know that even as Christians we sin, and and maybe there are times when we sin now more than we did before, in ways we didn't even sin as non-Christians. You know, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says that the immorality that was going on in the church in Corinth was worse than the pagans sinned. And sometimes that's true in the church today, unfortunately. It shouldn't be that way, sometimes it is. The point is that as Christians we still sin. So we can still put a barrier between the free flow of fellowship we should have between our Father and ourselves, and it is that sin, because sin is still an issue for God with us, even as His children. In those cases, we come to God, 1 John 2. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, John says. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins not for ours only, but also for those of the world. 1 John one nine: if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether we're an unbeliever that needs to be set right in God's family through the forgiveness in Christ, or whether we're his child who's sinning and needs to have that relationship re- restored, we have forgiveness. So that, that separation, Isaiah 59 talks about, it's not an issue anymore. If we've trusted Christ... We're in his family, we're his children. If we're his children in sinning, we come to the Father and we confess our sins. Jesus Christ, our advocate, our defense attorney, says, yes, Father, those sins are covered and paid for. And we're good to go. So the very first need any human being has is for forgiveness. We have it ultimately in Christ in our salvation, and we have it day by day in Christ as we confess our sins and forsake them. So, the wrath of God is gone, the discipline or training of a father for erring children is still in place, but sin in both senses has been taken care of in Christ. So, as believers in Christ, we are forgiven. The second thing I want to talk about is uh, that we are loved and accepted in Christ. Now, forgiveness gets us out of the woods, doesn't it? It gets us out of trouble, And now God is free to lavish his love and acceptance on us. He wasn't before. He couldn't because he wouldn't be just. And justice is part of his nature. It's part of his character. So having been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, God is now free to pour out his love on us. Listen to John 3.16, best known verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world isn't the planet It's not the globe that we stand on. Nor is it the cosmos in the sense John talks about in 1 John. It's not the world system that Satan runs. The world in John 3.16, it's you and me. God so loved the world. God so loved you. God so loved me. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Romans 5 says the same thing. God loved us even before we were saved. And so now once we're saved, he's free to pour that love out on us. There's nothing that restrains him. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, God our Father who has loved us. 1 John 4.10 Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And then I love this in John 14.16 and 17. God so loved us, John 3.16, that he sent his Son. Well, God so loved us that he sent also his Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth. God so loved us before we were saved that he sent his Son. And now he loves us and wants to be with us always. So what's he do? He sends us his Holy Spirit. Because he loves us. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. So he sent us his Spirit. He loved us in the past enough to die for us. He loves us in the present so that he gives us himself in the person of his Holy Spirit. As a uh, somewhat of a twisted young Christian, you know, with unregenerate thinking uh, related to the third point I want to make, I felt like uh, I knew that in Christ I was forgiven. And I knew that God loved me in Christ Uh, but this is kind of the way that felt to me. God had to love me because I was Christ's tag-along, you see. So he had to love me, but it wasn't personal. Do you remember the story of uh, David when, if I get this right, uh, Absalom kills his brother Amnon who raped his sister Tamar. And after two or three years in grandpa's country, uh, Joab, I think, tells a story through an old woman to David and He basically gets David to tell Absalom, you can come back. Absalom comes back, but David won't talk with him. So Absalom is forgiven, but he's not really welcomed. And so this, of course, leads to civil war later. Well, I kind of felt like that. I kind of felt like I was forgiven, but you kind of had to do it because of Christ, and you don't really like me, you know, the way I am. I feel like kind of... Kind of like the parents. You know when your kids bring home kids that you don't really like, but you've got to let them in because they're your kids' friends. You know, That's kind of the way I felt. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's unbiblical, as you know, and you're laughing at me, I'm sure. So. But think of this. Um, God doesn't just forgive us and then love us because he's got to. Of course, he wanted to love us. He wanted to be free to love us, which is why Christ died for us. But beyond that, and this is I think this liberates us from all kinds of uh, deficient, inferior thinking. Because of this, God actually, he delights in us. He savors us. He relishes us. And let me read you the part of Luke 15, which you know as the story of the prodigal son. Remember what the father's attitude was towards Junior when he turns around to restore fellowship? The prodigal took his dad's wealth early, said goodbye to dad. That was the sin, the insult. Spends all his money and comes to his senses. And so he determines to go back. And while still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. Junior goes through his spiel. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And of course, the father, it says, he says, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. This son of mine was dead, but he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. The picture here is that God didn't just reluctantly let Junior back in. The father doesn't reluctantly say, okay, you can come back. You've wasted all my wealth, but I'll let you in. See, he rejoices over his son, and all is forgiven. All the son had to say was, father, I blew it. This is 1 John 1, 1.9. I blew it when I took your wealth and left you and when I went and lived in the far country away from you and wasted everything you'd given me. I blew it. I'm sorry. Forgive me if you can. Well, Dad doesn't just forgive him. It's not this distant forgiveness. He rejoices over him. He puts the best that he has on him and he throws a party. He rejoices personally and he calls everyone with him to rejoice as well. And this is the picture of what God does with us and for us. It's not a begrudging acceptance because Christ died for our sins. It's this lavish enjoyment of us because we've been restored. So when God forgives us and loves us and accepts us, there's no distance left. He is this doting Father who loves us and rejoices over us. Uh, Listen to this passage, this is not a well-known verse, it's not in a well-known book, but listen to what God says will be true of Israel when they're restored in the future, this hasn't happened yet, and then understand that this is certainly true in principle of us because of our relationship with God in Christ. This is out of Zephaniah 3, verses 15 through 17. And at this future date for Israel, the Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The judgments that separated you from Him, they're gone. Your enemies that were surrounding you, they're gone. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Don't be afraid, O Zion. Don't let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior... He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Uh, When I was a young uh, freshman at Hayden High School many years ago, uh, I was so... When I was a young guy, I was so stinking lonely. That's why I came to Christ. I was so empty. And I was very successful, but I was entirely empty. And uh, we had a pep rally at Old Hayden East downtown, and they were introducing the basketball team. And I can't remember if they started with the varsity or the junior varsity or whatever, but they introduced the basketball team, and as they said my name you're in this little gymnasium most of you have probably never been there. in fact is it it's not even there anymore. shows you how old I am but the the stands little gymnasium packed you know several hundred students there, and you're introduced, and when they said my name and introduced me, I walked out and i I about couldn't see or hear because the sound was so intense, and it was this sense of it was just like you went home. it was like heaven because This applause was for you as an individual, and it was this picture. It was this sense of being rejoiced. I don't know if Joe was there, too. He probably remembers it. It was a sense of total acceptance because everyone there was cheering for you. Uh, We were at a uh, uh, Denver, Uh, what's the thing, the Promise Keepers. And all these adult men are in the stadium, Mile High Stadium. And the guys, the young guys have been at their own part during part of the day. And and the highlight of the whole weekend for me was when they... Excuse me. (laughs) You could see this was an issue for me. They they marched the young guys into the stadium and... uh, they had the uh, the dads and the men cheering for them, and uh, I just thought when I was a young guy, if I just could have had some sense of that, it would have it would have changed my life. It would have transformed my life. And I love my dad, but you know, my dad was this guy that was earning a living for eleven kids, and there just wasn't much personal, you know, that went on, and so. In, in, in ways, dad did the best he could and I loved him and I, I don't begrudge him anything but I realized as a young man we didn't get from my dad what we needed which was this sense of affirmation and guidance and this sense that you're rejoiced over as your parent's child. Well see this liberates you because you understand I can't lose. I'm, I'm, I'm not only forgiven, I'm not just accepted, or love I'm rejoiced over See, I'm the apple of my dad's eye. Well, this gives you all the confidence in the world. I don't know if you've met uh, people, uh, probably once in a while you'll meet these people who, they just have this sense of confidence. Well, not infrequently, you'll find they have that confidence because their parents instilled in them this sense of value and worth. And so they go through life and they believe life's going to be good like Edward Bloom because they believe, I'm born for extraordinary things because my parents instilled that in me. Well, this is true of you and I. When we're forgiven and we're accepted and loved, it's so that God can rejoice over us. It's not this begrudging acceptance. It's not, well, you can come back. The Lord throws a party, and he rejoices over us. Well, if you can understand this, you face life in an entirely different fashion. You're free. You're confident. You can face life confidently because you know My dad, he doesn't just think I'm okay. He delights in me. He rejoices over me. And that's what we've got in Christ. Not a begrudging, stiff-armed forgiveness or acceptance, but a a merry-making, party-throwing, rejoicing. In fact, I love that. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. This is like New Year's Eve when you're shouting and seeing the fireworks. That's what it's like. The Father's rejoicing over you. Uh, the fourth thing is that uh, in Christ you and I have as believers adequacy for everything that comes our way. We are adequate for everything you face in life. Now the beginning of 2005, I guarantee every one of us here is going to face temptations. And we're going to face difficulties, challenges of one kind or another. We're going to have times where we're tempted to feel very discouraged, maybe very lonely, maybe very misunderstood. We're going to face financial needs, maybe financial crises. There'll be all kinds of things that we're going to face, some of us more than others, one thing more than another, this year. It's a given because we're we're living on planet Earth. But in Christ, God has made full provision for everything you and I will face this year so that when something unexpected happens, we don't need to feel flustered and worried and anxious. And we don't have to Scratch our head and feel fearful because we can remind ourselves of a couple things that are true. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 1 30 and 31. By His, by God the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You need wisdom, Christ is it, and He's in you. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Christ is our wisdom. You need wisdom, I need wisdom. Christ has it. He is our wisdom. Philippians 4 is probably the best known passage, the most often quoted, related to provision in Christ. And Paul said this. By the way, remember this. Paul was a guy in life, before his conversion, who no doubt had some level of wealth. He certainly had public prestige, social standing in the Jewish community. He was a PhD of his day, academic, top of the heap all these things. And then he was a guy, remember Philippians is a prison epistle. This was written from prison. This is a guy who's been at the top and this is a guy who's writing from his experience at the bottom. And it gives all the more value to his words about what our provision in Christ is. He says from prison, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And What is the secret, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When you and I face a situation we feel we're not up to it, you can say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says this from prison. You and I are not in prison, but if we were, it would still be true. Whatever we face, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't have to feel up to it. I don't have to have adequate resources. I can do all things through him. Not in my own strength. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You and I will oftentimes feel as we look at ourselves and our resources for the crises or the needs that we face in life, we'll say, I can't do it. I don't have that. And that may be true of our resources and what we have But our resources are limited only by His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So this is a bank account that never goes dry. This is wealth that can never be exhausted. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You have no needs that God can't meet this year or in any other time. And the last one, 2 Peter 1.3 says, Peter tells us that his, God's divine power, has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. You and I have already the provision is there in Christ. So, I was having an outstanding day yesterday. I had prayed and my prayer request for my family over Christmas break was personal renewal. I just felt uh, worn out. Personal renewal. And I was sitting yesterday listening to music, studying, you know, Sunday school and teaching. I was just having a great day. And uh, I need to go print my teaching, and uh, this teaching. So I plug into my printer, and I try and print it, and I'm having a little problems. So I have to shut my computer down. I, I boot it back up, and guess what? All the things I'd just done in my teaching, they weren't on my document. They didn't save. And do you know what I did? I got really ticked and angry. I told God off. I did none of this stuff (laughs) that I'm telling you you should do. Yeah. So I went in my room. I knelt down on my bed. I said, Lord, I, gosh, you know, I guess I blew it. And I didn't do any of the things I'm talking about. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And he did. And I got up, and Junior was good to go. I was on my way again. But, you know, you and I, we're going to face a 100 things this year, little things we didn't expect. Our world gets shaken a little bit. Whatever. You're going to face them. And when you do, if you don't do it right away, like I didn't, that's okay. It's better if we do, and that's what we're aiming for. But stop yourself in whatever process of thinking and discouragement and anger or whatever else and remind yourself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got the provisions for this thing I didn't expect in Christ's riches. I don't have to come up with them. I can face this with peace because I know God's already made full provision for it. It's not on my shoulders to bear. My provision is in Christ. And the fifth thing is this. Uh, <clears throat> you and I can live 2005. We can build our house and establish it and fill it with precious and pleasant things because we have in Christ a glorious destiny. We have a glorious future. Back to Big Fish. Uh, Edward Bloom in his youth in the movie is given a vision of his death. This might sound morbid. In other words, if I showed you your death, you might cringe all your life thinking about the day of my death. I've seen how I die. That could be one response. His response was just the opposite, and it makes sense. He knows when he'll die, and he knows how, and it's at the end of a long, full life. So he's free every day of his life. He knows he's not going to die. He knows he's going to live this full, rich life, and that eventually when he's an old man, at the end of his days of this full, extraordinary life, then he'll die. So the vision of his future liberates him in his life. Since he knows, it's kind of as if I told you you can do no wrong. What would hold you back? Nothing. If I told you, go out and do any wild stunt you've ever thought of because you can't be hurt and you can't be killed. Well, it would remove all that natural, maybe most of it anyway, the the fear we have of hurting ourselves or of of killing ourselves, harming ourselves ultimately. That fear would be removed. Well, that was the thing in the movie. He knows he won't die until the end of a full rich life. So it liberates him for the rest of his life to live fully, completely, no holds barred, you see. Well, for you and I, we have a glorious destiny. We have a glorious future, not necessarily knowing the day of our death. We know that we'll live all the days God's allotted us on earth, though. Psalm says all our days, he's numbered them all. No one can thwart his will. Beyond the life, though, We have a glorious future in Christ in eternity. And because of that, we know where we're going, we know where we end up, we know how the story ends. That should liberate us to live this full, rich, extraordinary, fearless, joyful, expectant life. Because we know how our story ends. Let me just rattle off for you a few of the things that are true of you. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, these things are true of you. Not, not just someone else. These things are absolutely true of you. These are promises made to those in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus says, I'll grant to eat you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is paradise, uh, quoting Milton, paradise restored, the tree of life in the temple of God in eternity. Uh, Jesus says, I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you hidden manna. That is, we'll eat secret food together. We'll have this intimate meal together. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but you and me. This is God's pet name for you. He's giving you in eternity. Jesus says, I will give you authority over the nations. I don't know if you remember 1 Corinthians 5 again, but Paul says, don't you know that you will judge angels? He's speaking to Clods of clay like you and me who've been redeemed. And he says, guys, you can handle making judgments among yourselves because don't you realize you'll judge the angels? Jesus says to you, if you've trusted in Christ, you will have authority over the nations. Does this blow your mind? You and Edward Bloom, you're living an extraordinary life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is your pep rally in heaven. In the halls of splendor, Jesus is calling your name before countless myriads of people and angels. He's confessing you. This is your future. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This isn't isn't being grounded. This isn't being stuck at home. This This is having a position of honor and glory in Christ's presence. And pillars in these days were seen as adornments to the temples. You will adorn the courts of heaven itself in the presence of God and of Jesus. Jesus says, I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, you'll sit on his throne. You can't get any higher than this, guys. This is your future. Every Christian, this is true of. 1 John 3, 2 says, if you wonder what will I look like in the future, John says, when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We'll see him just as he is. You will be transformed. We don't look like much, most of us necessarily in this earthly clay house. But this says, when Christ appears, we are transformed into his glorious image. You'll look like him. You'll share his glory. You'll sit on his throne. You'll rule the nations. He'll call your name at the eternal pep rally. You'll walk forward and be rejoiced over. This is your future. This isn't pie in the sky when you die. This is reality. This will happen whether your faith and mine lays hold of this or not. This is your future and mine. This this will happen. But knowing it, like Edward Bloom, it frees us to live life fully, richly, exuberantly. In Daniel 12, I love the way the book of Daniel ends. Daniel's an old man, if you remember, in exile in Babylon, seeing these rich visions of the future. And Michael the archangel at the very end of the book of Daniel says, As for you, go your way to the end. You'll enter into rest. That's your death. You're going to lie down in sleep of death. But you'll rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Michael says, Daniel, God set aside your future. He's got your spot. Your spot on the team is reserved. You can't lose it. Finish your days. Take your sleep of death. But know this, you're going to rise. And God's going to install you into his government in eternity forever. Your allotted portion. This is what's true of you and I. So think about this for 2005, for your year coming up. These are a few of the things. These are only a few of the things that are true of you and I. Our sins as Christians, they're forgiven. Not just a little, entirely. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. There's no wrath left for you or I. And even as Christians, as children of God, when we blow it, we confess our sins and we are fully restored to the Father, Jesus our advocate, pleading our cause. You can't get a better defense attorney than that. We are accepted in Christ and love. We are rejoiced over, exalted over in Christ. Every provision you and I need for this year, it's already been provided. Everything you face this year, the provision in Christ is already there for you. And you and I have the certainty, not iffy, not, not in doubt, we have the certainty of this glorious, exalted future with Christ in Christ. These are a few of the things that are true for you and I in Christ. Most of us live like spiritual paupers, but this is what God calls us to, the realization of who we are in Christ, our riches in Christ, and to live a big, full life. This would be like if you come up to me and you bring a tin cup and say, Mike, I'm thirsty, can you give me a drink? And I say sure, and I turn on Niagara Falls. All you have to do. The provision far exceeds anything you'll ever need. But we live as if we're in the desert, and we just think a little sip would be good, and God says, forget the sip. I've got Niagara Falls right here. So think about Niagara Falls, think about Edward Bloom, and this year commit yourself not just to build that life, that structure that's built and established and full of pleasant and precious riches. But just think about a few times what's true of you in Christ, what your possession, possessions are in Christ, what your position in Christ is. And then you will be free to live that rich, full life. Let's pray. Lord, I'm delighted to be called by your name. Father, we rejoice in the salvation you've provided. Father, help us to your honor and glory to be able this year to lay hold a little bit more fully of what is true of us in your Son. Father, help us not to live like paupers when you have provided us the wealth of eternity, the wealth and riches of heaven itself, Lord, for our needs. God, help us to take you at your word. Help us to honor you through faith. Help us to live big, because of your promises and your provision. Help all that we do, Lord, say and think, be to your honor and reflect your truth. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.